0: Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. So good afternoon everyone, welcome to the ODI, welcome to the latest in the series of ODI Friday's lectures. Um, Just a couple of bits from me before we get started, Um, please do hold off on your questions until the end um, and then we'll make sure we pass the microphone around for you to ask them. Um, We will be live streaming um, the the lecture this afternoon, so if you are watching um, via the stream please do get your questions in on Twitter using the ODI Friday's hashtag and we'll make sure to get those asked at the end. Um, I'm really happy to be introducing the team from the Science Museum today who are going to tell us more about how they're going about opening up their collections to the world.
1: Um, I think that's all from me, so with that, welcome. Uh, Hello, good afternoon, thank you for inviting us. Uh, So my name's John Stack, Uh, I'm the Digital Director of the Science Museum, Uh, and I'm joined by my colleagues uh, Jamie Unwin and Dave Patton. and we're going to talk you through (coughs) some work that we've done uh, over the the, uh, last year or so. Uh, so the first thing to uh, I thought I'd talk about is a kind of a history of museum catalog data because you might think that uh, a museum is full of lots of different kinds of things. And our uh, collection is extraordinarily diverse. Everything from bicycles to bits of paper to nuts and bolts to aeroplanes and steam locomotives. Um, Fundamentally, museum data is, uh, in its long history has never really been catalogued uh, for public consumption. The underlying uh, records are there to manage the collection, so to manage um, uh, where an object is, uh, various legal statuses about it, where it's earmarked to go on uh, loan, uh, where it is now, if it's in storage, what part of the museum it's in. Uh, If there are hazards associated with it, so we have a lot of objects with asbestos, we use it to uh, monitor and audit those things. Uh, And if there are conservation issues, we use um, the the catalogue to manage those things. And this is all done within a very uh, specialised piece of software, which we call a collection management system. Uh, um, So for uh, 100 years or or more, working from pieces of paper and and literally library index cards, through to now within the, uh, databases fundamentally the the catalog is about managing the collection uh, and then 20 years ago or however we measure it along comes uh, the world wide web and suddenly we start to be able to sort of rethink access so about 20 years ago you start to see uh, museums uh, start to digitize their collections to take uh, subsets of that uh, ca- catalog information and to put it online and to photograph the Uh, objects uh, and put those things online in a big uh, searchable database. So to turn the access of the catalog from uh, or the collection from being a thing that you have to come to the museum to see, or if you're uh, an academic and a researcher and you have a specialist interest in the things in store, you could phone us up and probably write a letter to saying why you you should be allowed to give access to the material and you'd be allowed into reading rooms and stores and and things like that. So suddenly all the stuff everywhere. So we dug out this from uh, 1995 about what our digital ambitions were then. Uh, Early next year, the Science Museum will have its own address on the internet. And just a few pages will be added at first. But more pages will be put up until about 20 pages with hypertext links will be able to be accessed. (laughs) So we had lofty ambitions even from the beginning. It's very easy to course in the future, in 20 years time, someone will be watching this video and making a fool of me. so we have had our collection online since pretty early. this is its first uh, uh, iteration uh, and it was uh, sh- uh, uh, shortly thereafter a public API was built onto this um, early interface and we, so we've had a sort of o- uh, an open data initiative uh, really for quite a long time in the last year, we have decided that while this thing is okay, we could do a lot better. So, we've we've initiated a very large project to look again at how we deliver our collections online uh, and how we open up the data associated with it. Uh, so, this is our new collections website. And so, I mean, fundamentally, we need something with big pictures, which is really fast, uh, and where the search uh, works. Um, and then we've really started to think about, okay, what does access mean in the 21st century, what are the kind of uh, ways in which we could open up the collection more than just saying, well, there's stuff, there's pictures and there's text on the website. So, a few things we've chosen to do. Put put all the images that we can under a Creative Commons license and make that as easy as possible to uh, access but also to try and present the information about uh, what does that that actually mean? Because I think for all the people in this room and probably the people watching online, we sort of know what a Creative Commons license is and we know what the dimensions of it are, non-commercial, share alike, and and the others. Uh, But we felt like it was important to really start to explain that to to teachers and to others so that we actually really did encourage the use of those licenses. We're using the, mostly, we're using the uh, attribution, non-commercial, share alike license. So it's actually... Of all the Creative Commons licenses, it's actually the most restrictive. But we had to like take this through the organisation and convince everybody to start uh, on this journey. And obviously, we would love to go more open than that, and we'll do it as we go forward. Um, the second thing we did was the entire collection uh, uh, website is open sourced, uh, which means if you want to, you can like download the source code, uh, run it on your laptop, point it at our API, and you can like basically run the. Uh, build your own science museum group collection. And, we, and in this instance, we chose the MIT license, and the reason for that was it was just the simplest one. It's like it's actually only about this long, and it basically says uh, uh, you can kind of do what you want with our stuff. Uh, the third thing was we uh, opened up all the underlying uh, data for the catalog using the uh, public, uh, Creative Commons Zero public domain uh, dedication license, and the reason for this is there probably are things in there. Uh, although you could sort of make an argument that it probably uh, is probably almost in the public domain anyway. We felt like by giving it the CC0 dedication, we would just we, if there were like any moral uh, rights in there or were there any database rights, we would just say, hey, take our stuff and go to town with it. So, and we've again made this really prominent. It's on every page, uh, and you can uh, access mati- the um, data easily uh, the third thing is to create uh, application programming interface so uh, and museums have done this in different ways some museums have done and uh, you know like in just a, like a, just a big dump of all the data as a CSV file and that 's actually quite easy to do uh, but since we were uh, in the process of building a collections website which needed a new API anyway we 're in a good position to actually build an API that you could pass queries to and it would uh, pass you back the data. Uh, so you, you probably know this. Uh, Tim Bonus-Lee's sort of five-star rating for open data. So which goes from make your stuff available under a, a license, uh, an open license in some format, proprietary or, or otherwise, through to linked data and all that good stuff. So we're about three. So we're sort of on a journey, but it feels like it's not a bad start. Uh, in terms of the kinds of things that, museu- uh, that uh, the, the audiences have done with museum data, these are just four examples from uh, the Tate Gallery. So, starting to look at using visualizations to start to explore the data in a way that is sort of impossible through uh, kind of without like scraping the whole site. Uh, to looking at sort of new forms of scholarship and research, looking at the relationships between one thing and another. Uh, so, where previously this would have taken an, an art historian uh, months if not years to start to look at these things, suddenly we can start to explore that data uh, and draw out um, new forms of knowledge from it. There are more c- kind of creative things that people have done with a museum uh, collection data. So this is, I don't know whether the term net art is now really kind of uh, archaic, probably is, so i put a question mark. Uh, But uh, this um, artist took the Tate uh, descriptive words and the categorizations of the way that the artworks were described and made something that would just generate an endless list of things using these kind of rather funny ways that museums talk about their uh, collections. And then this uh, example is uh, a a jewelry maker who has created an algorithm that... uh, takes artworks from the open data and starts to create jewellery based on the uh, data sets taking the colours and the shapes and so on. So I'll pass over to my colleague Jamie now. <coughs> Hello, um, I'm Jamie, I'm the
2: technical architect on Collections Online the Science Museum. I'm probably going to cover some of the same Topics as John, but maybe slightly slightly more technical and how we built it and extracted the data. Um, <coughs> I've started this slide because I've come from came from a background for the museum of working with sort of events and news and jobs and travel and all those things have really structured data. And when I came to the museum, the first thing I realised was, and maybe John has said this, that you assume that they're like libraries, it's all going to be this beautifully dated and it's all being catalogued, and it's not. There's boxes where people have typed in a free text date or they might have just typed in, I think it is 1980. It's between these two dates. And so trying to pull that out, you've got this problem. And you can't start again because you've got hundreds of years of data that's come off cards. So you're dealing with this problem all the time of how, how do you extract that data? And secondly, how do you make it reliable? Because if we pull that data out and we get it wrong, and then someone else goes and sucks it across. Um, so this is sort of dichotomy between how much... You can munch it yourself, and how much you've got to keep it... Uh, how much you has got to go back to the curators and the collection services team who have got the controls over those systems. So we can't really go in there and just suddenly run massive scripts across all our dates and change all the dates because we think we've got a cool thing. It's got to be done very carefully. Um, and we've also got things like old places. So sort of in the museum, this historical place that might no longer exist, and how those taxonomies work... Um, so that was the first thing of really how to do it, you're you not work in this set you're looking at kind of going how um, How can we make sense of this um, this comes on sort of legacy systems that there isn't one thing we want you can't just suddenly go let's build a museum database site you've actually um, you've got existing systems that content is already in there so we actually mainly pull from three systems so we have an archivist which is um, For those not in the museum is actually documentation it's about how documents are found not um it's not what's in storage in terms of archives Um, we have another collection system which is about our objects so more physical tangible objects Um, and then we also have a media library which is where all our high-res images come from and so these systems are completely disparate so the first thing we had to do was actually look at how to join join these three systems together which we did this is a very, very high-level thing, but basically we pull them out of the various internal systems. We then do lookups, and once again, these systems aren't connected, um, or haven't historically been connected. So we're doing two things. One is that we're looking at how fuzzy we can match the IDs across the, which images are tied to that. And at the same time, our, we've got our ICT department to try and join these up. So there's sort of parallel streams, there's sort of things you can do immediately, and there's things that... Um, we can't do it immediately, but we're putting it into into process. We pull these through, join these up, put it back into Elasticsearch, which is kind of quite web-native. We resize images and create zooms. We bring this through to the website, and we actually the API is um, is powering our own website. So we actually our own, the API that we expose at the base level is pretty much what we're using to power our own website, which and that was quite a quite a conscious decision that we didn't didn't really want something to hang off the side or the baseline we wanted the the two to be very tightly connected. Um, we then built a prototype and that was really trying to us to get a feel of the data but also communicating with everyone in the organization where the problems lied so the, the first stage really in way was us building the website and getting on with it but it was also at the same time to be able to feed back into the wider organization things that might take longer to change. Um, uh process wise um and this is um we really wanted to kind of get the, the archivists and the curators used to seeing the website and understanding how in the back end they can make those changes themselves we didn't really want to take an export and suddenly work on that in the six months day. we wanted it as a live system so getting that process in place where the curators felt that what they were seeing on the web when they were cataloging, they were cataloging for public consumption. Um, This is the website, Um, once again, it's very much an iterative approach, the codes on GitHub, we're continually updating it. Um, In terms of the API, the main thing we've done, so when we come through the website, we're actually, the first thing we're doing is creating this API, so we bring them all together from all those disparate systems in the back end doing some cleanup on it and some rules base, and then this is this is a version of what's an elastic search index it's slightly less than what we use internally but it's the same structure and we we decided that we didn't really want to convert it completely into another format um, and then continue you have to kind of keep that updated it was this is what we're using inside the website um, there's a there's a subset so there's more of this but we wanted to kind of keep it as much as as possible in line with what we use so that and it's based on content negotiation, so actually, um, done a bit of the URL hacking there, but actually if you search for a page on the site and ask for it as JSON, you get back the JSON. If you you go in a normal web browser, you'll get it back as HTML. So the, the, there was that consideration as well, that a, a HTML page and a page of data, effectively the same thing. It's sort of, they're just different ways of displaying the data. So we didn't really want to build a, and we, we may do it later on, and we've had other people actually take this, and convert it and build it in other things, but we wanted to keep the. We we're showing pages of data. It's an API, so we're trying to keep the API very closely tied to the website. Um, in terms of um, where we're going on the future, we'd love to get. So this is one of our pictures inside the uh, uh, inside our collections system we pulled out. Um, We'd love to get more into, kind of as John said, get into that four points and the five points where we've actually got these URLs and aim points. The problem is in the original collections, we don't, there's lots of, why don't you publish all this open data? Why don't you have all these people as URLs? And the truth is in the original systems, we don't have those people as URLs. And if we have Charles Babbage, although it's very easy for me to know that that Charles Babbage is that Charles Babbage on Wikipedia or in the Oxford DB, it's very hard textually to match that up. So we're slowly going through and encouraging curators to put those URLs in as we get them. But it's not something we can go overnight and do. And what comes back to this question of being responsible for the data, that if we just make guesses about it and suddenly go, this is this person, and we get it wrong, that could propagate out and then we'd have objects attributed to the wrong person. So that's something we're doing, but it's going to take time to to get there. That's a really quick run-through. <laughs> I think, I mean, probably best is actually in a Q&A in more of the technical, if anyone wants to do it. But pass you over to Dave now. We can talk about how we actually use the data.
3: So I get to do something slightly <laughs> different. Um, so I don't have to make it. I get to play with it or help people play with the data. So I'm Dave Patton. I'm head of New Media at the Science Museum. Come in. Um, and I'm responsible for the digital things we do on the floor of the museum. Um, so... When we were looking at the API, we're kind of really keen for, um, to, to open that up and we don't think that necessarily we'll have the best ideas about how we might use the collection, so we really wanted to open this up to, um, to a wider community and we were really fortunate. We've got a new initiative at the museum called Digital Lab. Um, which is funded in the first instance by Samsung that allows us to do some of the more experimental work that we've always done quite a lot of in the museum and kind of do it in one place and talk about it as a as a single entity. Um, and we decided one of the things we'd do under Digital Lab was to hold um, a hackathon around the API. So I worked with um, Mar Dixon, who does the... Um, Art curator, Museum Selfie Down, has run Museum Mix, and Don Undine, who is the or was the digital um, director of the Met Media Lab, a Metropolitan Museum in New York, um, and we constructed a two-day hackathon, and we put invitations out on Eventbrite. Uh, we basically sold or, or gave all of the tickets away within the first forty-eight hours um, to about sixty people, um, and we had teams apply. To come and be part of that, so we had teams from the Wellcome Trust, from other museums, the that History Museum, and from Tate, and we had lots of individuals come as well. So one of the things we needed to do when we got people there was to form people into teams. Uh, so this is uh, one of the. This is probably on the first day of the hack- hackathon. We had a big space in the museum. We ran it over two days. Um, so we set people the challenge of exploring and doing interesting things with the API and that could be anything, it could be online things it could be physical things in the museum Um, we had museum staff, so Jamie and John and myself and some other people from the museum were around to help Um, we also brought in students from Goldsmiths College who helped uh, push stuff out on social media for this and just helped the teams building things and this this slide is titled Hackathon number one because this is the first of at least two of these and probably a series of, the, of these that we'll do over the next few years. So people worked for a couple of days. and It was probably, probably in total just a, probably a day and a half of coding and building and built a variety of different things. So We had 12 teams um, and we got some different kind of categories of things. So some people built games um, And this is probably one of the most polished of the games. This basically pulls things down from our collection and presents you with five objects, and you have to arrange them on a timeline. It seems really, really simple. There's something really quite compelling about this. And basically, every time you put an object on the timeline, if you're right, you just pause another object on on the timeline. Um, So people... It's making people think about the ages of those things in the collection, engaging with the collection in a more playful way. A couple of other teams developed games. Another category of of, um, projects we had were chatbots. So people building voice-based systems that they could interrogate uh, the collection um, using voice. So basically, you can ask the system... Um, you know, tell me about trains the Science Museum has Uh, and it will come back and it's basically passing through the collections API and bringing back information, reading through the records and letting letting you then further query that so um, this has got a match for train about signalling instruments you can then dig in and ask it about signalling instruments and it will come back and we were quite interested in this partly because of the... um, the emergence of some of the voice-based assistants that we're seeing in homes now, and this is a different way that people might engage with our collections. Um, and it was quite interesting to see how quickly these systems were, were put together. Um, another category of, of uh, another, another group of teams worked on installations. So this is a, a large projected installation which just pulls down randomly things from the museum's collection and presents them on a timeline. So it's just pulling out objects and the their date, the creation date of the objects. And it really gives a sense of the breadth of the collection and the size of the collection. That's something we're quite keen to push into the museum. There's about 7% of the museum's collection is on display at any one time. So most of the collection is in store, and there are whole parts of the collection that are just not on public display. So something like this gives a real sense of all of those things that you don't necessarily see when you come to the museum. Um, And we're quite interested in this as something we might take forward to be able to pop up in spaces when we have an empty space between exhibitions, just to give people a real sense of how big the collection is and and the breadth of collecting the museum does. Uh, And now I need to stop. This. okay um, and the, uh, this is a different kind of installation this is probably this is probably our favorite um, project of, of the two days this is the egg uh, this, was, uh, uh, this was developed by an agency that came as a team um, and the egg is a physical device um, which you collect when you come into the museum and there are sensors around the museum that work out where you're spending time in the museum. And all you do with the egg, when you come into the museum, you pick one up and you put it on. You wear it. You put it on the (laughs) lanyard around your neck and you just have a normal visit in the museum. When you get to the end of your visit, you take the egg off and you dock the egg in its docking station. And, And the egg works out the things it thinks you are most interested in by the dwell time. So which objects did you spend most time in front of? And it comes back and it'll print you a small postcard about with some information about those objects, but then it will pull some information back from our stored collection about things you won't have seen but we think you would be interested in, and you won't have seen them because they're not on display. Um, we really like this because you didn't actually need to do anything. All you need to do was wear this. It just sensed where you were in the museum. It presented you with something you knew, and it presented you with some new content. Um, it looked really lovely, they did a really, really nice job building this. And they'd obviously done some work before they came to the hack day. Um, but we think there's some real potential in, in projects like this. Um, and it particularly because it doesn't change the way you visit a museum. So it's not like walking around a museum with your mobile phone, collecting things on your mobile phone or writing things down. You just put this on and walk around the museum and it presents you with something interesting at the end of that visit. So we had a, a kind of a great time Um, doing all of this. And as I say, we ran the event over two days, so a Tuesday and a Wednesday, culminating on the Wednesday when we have a late event at the museum. So we close the museum at six and then we open up again at seven for three and a half hours for an adult in the audience. So we have lots of events in the museum and we basically re-rigged the space to put all of these things that have been developed over the two days on display to the visitors that evening. So it's a real opportunity for the teams to show off their work to a broader public, for the public to see something really different and look at different ways of engaging with our collection. Um, As part of the work, we encouraged all of the teams to publish everything they'd done. So they all published the code on GitHub um, with open licences so anybody can go back and and use this. We can go back and and do some work with this as well. Um, And we also got people to post a blog post on the Digital Labs um, blog so if you want to find out more about what happened as part of that there are a series of blog posts on the Digital Labs blog and there are links off to the um, to the bits of software and the repositories for those software. Um, We we, we ran this three weeks ago um, and we're just doing the kind of final wrap-up and getting final documentation and doing the final summary posts of of the things we really liked, what worked well and partly about how we ran the process um, in preparation for doing another one and we're looking at doing another one of these days probably later in the year possibly in Manchester at one of our sister museums rather than doing it in London. Um, Not necessarily about the Collections API. We're looking at other challenges in the museum, but it's just a nice way to bring creative people in and do things the museum wouldn't normally do and give people permission to do that. So I think that's me done. So any questions, I guess?
0: (coughs) Yes, you have a a choice of three people this week to to ask questions to. So should we start with, any questions that we, we have in the room.
3: Um, hi, hello, I'm Shing. I'm from Royal and uh, I'm also very interested in the project of the AG, and I'm wondering if the uh, objects uh, are already being made, uh, being manufactured, and so how does it actually work in the real situation in the science museum? So the, um, it's, it's basically a Bluetooth-based system. So they put Bluetooth beacons by all of the objects, and there's a Bluetooth scanner in in the egg. They built all of the hardware to do that. So it's Arduino and BBC microbit-based, um, and then running, running onto a server. So it's not commercially available, but all of the source code is in the repository, and there are some instructions on how they went about building that. Great. So
0: any more questions in the room?
4: Uh, uh, Martin Keats, um, just an interested member of the public. Um, so, if
3: you found statistically analysing what people were interested in through the egg, might that encourage you to say, well, we'll bring out certain things yep. from storage, so yeah, right, so they're visible for a bit, even if we have to rotate, Yeah. Yep. so it helps you understand what people interested really in. So I think is. This, you know, this is one of the really interesting things, when you open up the data in that way, you yep. get a better insight into what people are interested in and that may change the way you display and collect. And there were some really interesting things that happened when the Cooper Hewitt in New York, they've got a system, they, have a, they give each visitor an electronic pen and you can go around and you can collect <coughs> things using the pen. And one of the things that they discovered was people are, people quite like to collect colour. Um, so they were collecting objects by colour and that made their curatorial staff then do an exhibition that was an exhibition ordered by colour. So not on collection, it was just about tonality of colour. And that was something they'd not thought about doing before, and that purely came on the insight of running that data and, and looking at what visitors did.
2: I think it's worth saying as well, on, on the new website, I mean, so there's, there's nothing groundbreaking, but actually having the website and monitoring that very closely on what categories, what areas, what objects are searching for. Um, uh, um, using their statistics to look at what's on and how that should affect where areas go is, is something we're looking at feeding back on right, more. Uh, so Richard, uh, Richard Leeming, uh, ex of the REST project now uh, consultant. Um, I w- wanted to talk to you about what you uh, said about licensing your objects under a non-commercial license and you know, that was a journey with the museum. So what arguments did you get back from the museum? How confident are you that you
1: can push them to be more open and have you encountered any problems with licensing under uh, objects under a non-commercial license? Um, (coughs) So, no, haven't had any problems. Uh, The reason the non-commercial is used is that uh, licensing images from the collection uh, for people to use commercially, so in books, in TV programs, and so on, is a revenue stream for the uh, museum and the museum is having you know grant aid from the government is going down so we're ever looking to find money from other sources uh, the in a way until th- so we want to sort of protect that it, uh, the in a way the most difficult thing was we felt it was really important as well as just to put the license up uh, was to explain what we interpreted by it so there are kind of two parts to it one of which is if we ask for attribution we should sort of say what we want by that, which is fundamentally, I mean, that's a sort of easy one. We say, well, we'd love a link and we'd like you to use the correct title and date and and what have you. And the other is to define what we mean by non-commercial and because Creative Commons doesn't really do that for you. uh, And so uh, clearly making a postcard and selling it would seem commercial, but there are other, if someone puts it on their blog, but they've got Google AdWords on there, is that commercial? It's a, pub- it's a public lecture that's free, feels non-commercial, but what if you charge money to pay the rent? Is that commercial? So I think we did put in some, we had a lot of conversations about defining the edges of that. Not that I think we'll ever end up litigating or going to court about this, but we felt like it was important to say we think these are the boundaries there. Uh, on the data, which isn't an answer to your question, but, but it feels important, on, on, on the opening up the data, one of the reasons why we went for the most permissive license we could was we felt like it would be, although it would be nice if people attributed our data when they used it, we wanted to not demand an attribution. And the reason was if you take our data and 50 other people's data, if if you're a computer programmer, you have to take that little bit of data wherever I use it has to be attributed to this all the way through some piece of complicated software. It's just overly onerous and doesn't really benefit us and it probably limits the kinds of people that will use it and the kinds of things that they'll do with it.
2: I mean, is it fair to say we, we'd hope people to be responsible, I mean there is the question that if you put out any attribution and the data changes and it may because we may find something out new then it's already gone out there so but then I guess we'd, we'd hope that people are using it are using it responsibly um, without, as John said, without forcing with putting that too much weight on that. That's
1: and in fact it will change because the museum data set is not a, fi- a fixed thing new scholarship and research changes dates even changes titles might even change you know lots of things if you l- start to dig in they're like unknown thing by unknown maker of unknown date and over time we'll work out what those things are
0: Anna, do we have any questions online?
4: yeah thanks so um, Charlotte Connolly who appears to be curator at the Polar Museum um, and I think she's a PhD student Uh, for the science museum as well um asks uh, is there anything that might be an easy win for small museums with fewer resources
2: i for me i would say one thing actually now it's an approach we've taken is that if you're is doing if you've got websites now actually look at can you turn those html pages into almost an api response and have it as a, a json and a html page because then you've as an in a requirement that you almost want two versions of that page, which is quite easy to implement now in a lot of new CMSs. That's not everything, but if you have got those object pages already online, um, and markup as well in those pages as well, I mean, um, so not necessarily building whole set for complete APIs, but can you extend your website to provide that data in a more accessible way? Lev, um, if you got something going? go? Um,
1: Writing an API is quite complicated. Maintaining it is even harder.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think this is a very valid point. as the more you hasn't, it's gotta be, someone writes and disappears, then it dies, doesn't it? So it's kind of keeping it in sync.
1: So I think probably there's, you can get to the three stars by actually just doing some kind of dump into a CSV file uh, and putting it in on GitHub where you're gonna get version control sort of for free. Uh, and that's what a lot of institutions are doing. I suppose, it, it, but even with that, to to dump the data and then just sort of abandon it feels like you'd be almost better off not doing it at all. You do need to maintain it. If you put data up there and people come back and say uh, they've noticed things that are wrong with it, you need somebody who sort of owns owns that relationship with those people who are using the data
2: I mean this, this might go against the grain to some people but I mean past few ideas have greatly proposed saying can you convert all your data into this one particular format and if all your museums do it and but, um, different formats sort of spend all this time converting it into one format um, and then we'll all aggregate all that data um, and that's fine you do it once but then then you move on and kind of the, the, in a way having something like JSON kind of keeping it something that's really really web na- um, web native. um, If your resources are limited I would say go for just putting something like JSON out there or some markup in your page over trying to convert it into one specific format because in a year's time everyone will decide that there's a new core format out and that's the you should all conform to that one. That's That's not to dismiss all the efforts to people to try and get it into those specifications and those particular formats for particular needs and aggregation but if your resources are really limited doing it in one particular very niche format is probably not the best use of your resources. That's not to say you shouldn't be doing that if you have the resources, but if it's limited doing 1v, especially if someone to use that data has then got to read a great big, great big specification document to use it, I think you'd be better off putting it in some there people just load that data in and get ready and start. And this came from the hack day that people were using our API within an hour, they weren't sitting there reading great big specification documents or writing libraries or having to install libraries They were just using it because we
1: had written it in JSON. You were also there in the room and they could ask you.
2: They could ask me. (laughs) But it was all (laughs) self-describing as well that kind of we didn't build, and we may go there, and and part of this is to look at how people are using our data. We didn't really want to build this API in a specific format just to put it out there. It was how do people want to use our data? Come back and talk to us. And if you want to, in a specific format, so we can aggregate it, and we want to do a linked over data, we're totally up for doing that. But we kind of want to see where the usage before... We don't want to just build formats in every single possible format for the sake of doing it. It's how are you using our data? What do you want? Come back and we'll put it in. You, you can actually put a pull request in for the the code base as well if you wanted to put your own one in there. Um, but yeah, we kind of we didn't really want to have a hundred formats to maintain. It's sort of which ones are you using? How are you using? Who is really using it? I think is.
1: I also suspect that, suspect that over time, and this will probably help museums and. Uh, institutions that uh, that the underlying uh, collection management systems will start to support things like uh, uh, linked open data and, and publishing out to other formats at the moment they I mean they're all pr- very proprietary systems there are a few open source ones but they're not as sort of, sort of mature as the proprietary <coughs> systems but there is that over the last few years at the sort of uh, museum technology conferences there's a lot more talk about uh, you know working with the uh, uh, software vendors to start to sort of bake open data into the underlying system, so things like um, being able to lo- uh, look up um, identifiers outside the system and, u- and use other things f- t- yeah. to create linked open data is definitely coming th- through that route, which probably makes it much easier than a small museum who who, who can 't hire a team of fantastic developers
4: thank you and got another question from peter wells who 's our head of uh, research here at the ADI, um, and he asks, do we have any plans to publish open data about museum use, for example, number of visitors or demographics?
3: I think we publish that anyway through our annual reports. We certainly publish visitor numbers, um, and there'll be a granularity of demographic. We, we collect the information, and I'm pretty sure it's published in our annual reviews.
0: I'm going to be selfish and ask my own question. Um, so you mentioned um, sort of the unknowns within the collection itself. So the things that may have unknown unknown. Um, the uh, exactly. Um,
2: sometimes the legitimate as well. Sometimes it
0: is, <laughs> it's unknown because it is unknown. It doesn't mean
2: it's well. You know, it's not a missing entry. Some, yeah,
0: <laughs> um, so yeah. Again. So So as well as um, external use of the data, have you considered mechanisms that enable um, external contribution or edits or? Um, improvement of the data. Itself. Two things there.
2: One is that we actually, and I sort of skipped over it inside, one actually we're talking about using our internal API and a, probably a version of the website that's maybe slightly more enriched internally and getting internal systems to use our own API to build layers and getting the curators to use it as a quick way to look stuff up. Might have more information but rather than going to these old legacy enterprise systems for really quick lookups getting them to use it
0: as that. Um, in terms of the second part, Got to say it again, sorry. He's, um, yeah, interested in sort of collaborative maintenance of the collection and the data that describes the collection and wh- whether there's any sort of future in, in enabling others to contribute to that. So sort of crowdsourcing
1: basically.
2: Yeah, I mean, we, do you want to talk about that one more?
1: Yeah, we're, we're absolutely interested in it and it's one of it's in our digital strategy as something that we want to, is a sort of logical next stage of the work that you've just seen. Uh, and and in, a, <coughs> in a way, our collections much more naturally lend itself to that kind of approach than perhaps say an art history collection because there will be communities of interest out in the world who will who will have a depth of knowledge Uh, so if you take for example we have a, a collection of literally hundreds of thousands if not millions of uh photographs of the railways and a curator can probably make a guess at where that was and when it was, but probably railway enthusiasts, if we were to put that, you know 100,000 photographs online and say, tell us where this was and when it was, they'd have probably sort of done it by the end of the day. Uh, um, so enthusiasts, also people that use those things. A lot of the things in our collection are really things that real people worked with. So... Um, in addition to just sort of adding metadata, we're also interested in how people might tell the stories of those objects, so maybe they drove that bus or they flew that airplane or they worked on that uh, telephone switchboard so there's there's something <coughs> on that side on that side too so yes, yeah, so we're absolutely interested in that. That's great, thank you. I think Hannah had a question.
4: Okay. Thanks very much. I'd love to hear a bit more about how you feel that data is affecting visitor behavior. So you've opened all this up and obviously everybody's got more extravagant devices. How's it changing the way that people prepare for a visit to the museum, come to visit the museum and follow up their relationship? Or haven't you measured yet? (laughs)
3: Well, in terms of using devices in the museum, um, we've done a couple of pieces of research. So one in 2012 and a follow-up last year which suggests most people are not using their devices to do things with the collection in the museum and have no great desire to do that. So the things that people use their devices to do are the kind of things you'd expect. It's around social media and around capture of the experience, so taking photographs of things in the museum and themselves with things in the museum. Um, in terms of getting more information about the collection, it's down at about 10 percent of those people that bring smart devices are, are kind of interested in doing that and an even smaller number are actually doing it um, so just
2: going, before we start on the redesign we actually did some measurement of how people are looking at collections on the existing bits of collections across the sites um, and it varies i mean it varies quite considerably between the so it's, we actually agreed before museums um there is difference between so the so the railway museums you have people who think that they think that they are just an enthusiast but they're actually extremely knowledgeable in the science museum you're people who think maybe the opposite way around that they're actually sort of experts but they're not um it is, it's just, it's an extremely I mean, you could do a whole talk on it it's an extremely varied across all the museums of how people different user groups and we're going to do another one now the website's launched so we're still in beach. once without beats we're going to do another survey on the website and seeing what kinds of people are using. But it varies, I think, from general interest to people doing homework to people just putting a query into Google um, to people visiting to the museum and planning. So it, it's, it's across the board and it does change quite considerably across the four different museums as well.
1: Joining do, do up the question about audiences and their, their behaviours and the crowdsourcing question, They're, we're also interested in how we might categorise things with very technical jargon heavy ways of describing things but the public actually might describe something very differently so the example that's often given is uh if you give dentists to, to categorize a collection of stuff they'll use words like dental but if you but the public will come and they'll put teeth into a search box and so to try and look at sort of folksonomies of describing things also feels like a really interesting area to do some crowdsourcing
2: yeah, we've been modifying the search engine, looking at those terms, so as John said, like things like people typing trains meaning locomotives or dentals and so we've had to be we've sort of continually looking at the front end of how we're putting these. We don't want to, we don't want to put in the back end as new terms, but on the front end it's sort of, these are what the general public, so in some ways that's more of a presentation layer thing of looking at when people say this they actually mean this, but we're, some of those we're not putting in the back end system because they're not, effectively they're not cataloguing, they're more about the user interface.
4: Something behind my question was also an interest in the way that um, when websites started emerging for m- museums and galleries, they were sort of seen as an afterthought, you know, they, they were the documentation, but now I sugge- I'd suggest that they're the thing that people come to first, and perhaps there's even a shift where it might be, you might have thought that most audiences were coming into the site, now I imagine most of your audiences are potentially external to the site. Yeah, That's I mean,
2: so... Uh, do you want, there, I mean there's a huge amount of traffic obviously comes off Google people aren't searching for the museum they're searching for objects and we're launching our our new museums and so all of the I mean, John can talk a bit about but all of the the main museum pages will link to the collection pages and vice versa so in some ways we see the collection object pages sort of a hub to or sort of the, to all the other spoke pages whether that's external or lots of our
1: internal content. but whether you want to talk about narratives around that or they, yeah, I mean, essentially, we have twice as many visits to our website as we do to our museums, which is a great statistic just to drop into casual conversations with yeah. the finance director mm-hmm. when it comes to budget round. In a way, we've, gone f- yeah, we, we've sort of gone from being the... the muse- we, we kind of think of the website both as a sort of companion to a visit and also a sort of standalone destination in its own right. One of the interesting things about collections is that the interface has to sort of serve everybody from a sort of 13 year old who's just sort of, ooh, planes, let's look at planes, right through to like a, a PhD at the other end and everybody in between, maybe like a kind of jewelry student who's thinking, oh, I've got a steampunk assignment, let's go to the science museum and see if we can find some nice brass to get inspiration from. And so it's, a, it's quite a complicated design task, because it's potentially used in the museum. It's potentially any of these other kinds of uses. So if you're building a kid's website, you just sort of build it for kids of a certain age, and you test with them. And so in a way, the design tends to be quite, quite sort of flat uh, and, and sort of functional. Uh, so one of the other things we haven't sort of mentioned is one, looking forward, we're kind of interested in new kinds of discovery. Because at the moment, this, the, the, fundamentally, the discovery mechanism is a search box, which kind of says, you, you know what you're looking for before you start. You've got to come here with a word in your head or a phrase in your head that you're going to put into that search box. So what it doesn't do is say, here's the wealth of stuff, which is the experience that you get when you walk into the museum. The slide we had at the beginning, which is the Making the Modern World Gallery, you go through an archway and there's a massive airplane hanging from the ceiling, and a pile of cars, and a V2 rocket, and, it, and rocket the locomotive, and it's kind of incredible. And you don't really get that experience once you start digging in and start, you know, saying, "Oh, show me all the beautiful 1930s railways posters." You start to get some experiences like that. But one of the things, but now we have this API, we're, we're thinking about, other secondary interfaces that we can build on top of it, are much more about serendipity uh, and discovering things that you uh, uh, weren't necessarily came to be interested in and that was one of the things that was really nice to come out of the hack day was starting to see some kinds of interfaces that just threw you stuff you'd never seen because rest assured no one at the museum has seen all the photographs <laughs> on that online collection website uh, let alone uh, anyone in the public
0: Great, so I think we, we're about time to, to wrap up, um, I think the last thing to do is just thank you guys for coming along and Letting us know more about what you're up to. Thank you. Yeah,
1: Pleasure. Nice to you. So much.
0: <laughs> You've been listening to a Friday lunchtime lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institutes.